Hello, it's Trish and Heather here and we're home design coaches and founders of The Scribble Club. The Scribble Club is an online community for people who like design, healthy and functional homes and are looking for creative inspiration from professional designers. We're so excited to announce our brand new podcast called The Sketchy Ladies. Our podcast is a mix of design and building advice from inside the industry. You'll get simple tips and tricks to help you overcome your design challenges with creative solutions. You'll learn how to create spaces you've always dreamed of but never had the confidence to design. We value beautiful, functional, healthy homes and that's what we're here to help you discover. As qualified designers and busy mums, we understand how your health, sanity and well-being can benefit from a well-designed home. There's no need to settle for second best. Each week you'll get some tips and tricks to help improve the spaces inside and outside your home. Make sure you subscribe to the Sketchy Ladies podcast and this way you won't miss an episode. You can find links to all of the episodes and other goodies at thescribbleclub.com forward slash podcast. The Sketchy Ladies podcast is here to help you create your dream home. Let's make it happen. Welcome to episode seven of the Sketchy Ladies podcast with Trish and Heather. Today we'll be covering site challenges when it comes to designing a home. In today's episode we'll cover four of the most common site challenges, the costs of making errors and how to avoid them. The challenges we're looking at today are building orientation, site levels, size and zones. Trish, building orientation is a big one obviously because it's all about the climate, isn't it? It sure is. Every location around Australia or the world, we're going to have different climates. Climate refers to whether you might be in a warmer environment or a cooler environment. In Australia, they're zoned. We have a lower zoning, which might be a warmer area which might be climate one and then we go right up to seven or eight climate zone eight which is where we've got our snowfall our heavy up in the mountains and the heavy snowfall that's definitely something that part of the orientation we want to consider what zone we're in in a zone one climate zone one you might be looking at needing to protect your home from the heat you want more shading around the windows whereas in those cooler climates you want to get more heat and sunlight into your home. One really important thing about climate is we have the macro climate and the micro climate. So the macro climate the big climate the climate for the whole area or the whole zone of where you're located but within that you've got microclimate it might be all a general climate that's cold for example but in a certain area you might be more exposed to the sea or you might be more inland and that will obviously change the climate of the site and where it's located locally so that's site specific related to the actual location then we start looking at the natural light and the sun path that's a part of that and that could change with the topography so you might have big hills or a large forest behind as well so we've got to think about those things coming together too What's totally different too is between areas within where you are from the equator. The closer you are to the equator, the sun tracks in a totally different way than it does further away from the equator. And it's really quite different when we deal with sites in Tassie, for example, the sun tracks very high in summer and very low in winter. So we can take advantage of that by using the sun's path to be able to bring heat and light in to the house when it's cold outside and it can really help how you heat a house. Whereas in more northern parts of Australia, obviously you're trying to protect from the sun so the sun doesn't go in such a low path. We can provide shading that will work for both summer and winter. Yeah, that's right. And then we start going into what we're actually doing on site with that shading. So it could be an internal part or an external part of your building, fixed items, and then it's also the landscaping and what's around. With that natural light, What are some of the things that you feel that can be a huge benefit to a site in regards to the building orientation? Well, obviously the fact that it's got sunlight. (laughs) Plenty of times you see sites that because of their orientation might be long and narrow and don't face the way that we'd like them to. The best orientation for a home design is to have effectively a northern facing 
aspect, which means that the bulk of the house will face north, which means we can capture the eastern sunrise and sun and warming and then also the sunset on the west and the south of the house is just gets the diffuse light not the direct light if the orientation of the site is completely opposite then we face challenges with actually getting heat and light into a house it's a big issue in tassie because we have a lot of southern views our views are amazing all over the state and it's 50 50 isn't it we can have beautiful views to the north or the south can be a big challenge in itself. Natural light can be achieved either way, but it's also that heat loss or you're not gaining the sun through winter. It would be ideal to have your natural light and your views in the same plane, but if you manage to get that, then you're probably playing a premium for your side yeah. because you're probably facing either the ocean or the views, particularly in the southern part of the state, definitely all the views are to the south and that creates a real issue. If we're facing south, we're not getting natural light in. And one of the implications of not being able to get natural light and heat into a house is obviously mould and poor outcomes within a house. We really, really want good natural light and ventilation because that in turn affects the health of the home. The next thing we really need to look at carefully is the prevailing winds and natural ventilation. Trish, when you go to a site, do you check out where the wind comes from? Yeah, and sometimes it's really clear. You can have a windy day and you know exactly where it's coming from. You can be up there on a steel day and sometimes that's where you have to actually bring in an expert that have all those sort of things modelled and where we might actually bring in someone that does the soil testing but they also do the wind classification. That's classifying the strength of the wind and the direction of the wind. The prevailing winds are those strong winds and where they're coming from. They might be coming from the north or off the ocean or off the mountain. Again, we come back to macro and microclimate. A macroclimate for winds, in the northern part of Australia, we have quite a few areas that are cyclone affected mm. and the design of houses really changes when you've got cyclone or cyclonic conditions because of the bracing of the houses and the whole design. One of the things we look at is the strength of the wind and it's not just cyclones it's how strong the gusts can be and that gives us our wind ratings it's not just the direction the wind comes from but the type of severity the wind how that might affect the house and that design goes right through to the structure and it also brings in energy efficiency when we're talking about the heat of the house and the cooling of the house having that natural ventilation can help cool the house down really well. Maybe it's taking advantage of some of those winds and the direction they're coming from. So we're not turning the aircon on or the fans and they're using energy and power to cool our homes. But then it's also back into the natural sunlight, having that warm our homes naturally as opposed to needing to turn on what we call in Tassie, a heat pump. (laughs) (laughs) With the prevailing range of natural ventilation, that can be sourced from natural conditions. On the east coast of Australia, our prevailing winds can tend to be southerly in the afternoon and on the west coast we have the Fremantle doctor that blows in and they're very, very helpful in summer for cooling off what are otherwise very hot conditions. In Perth you can be in the mid-40s for a greater part of the summer and being able to use those prevailing winds and natural ventilation to cool a place down substantially saves you on air conditioning. Energy efficiency is a big thing where if we can use our natural ventilation we're not having to use as much mechanical ventilation to what we call our ambient temperature, which is our average temperature or comfortable temperature at something that's comfortable. Yeah, that's right. That's what we want our homes, isn't it? We want them comfortable. So then we start looking at site levels and we start talking about the slope of the site. Can you tell me a little bit more what the slope of a site actually means? Well, it's really interesting because you can look at a site and think that it's flat, but in actual fact, it's probably falls from one direction to the other. A slope is the difference between the highest point and the lowest point on a site. And it's not always obvious and it's 
just about always not in a single direction. It can slope in two directions. So it might be from corner to corner, it might be through the middle, it might be from the centre sloping out. All depends on where you are and what it is. But the big thing about slope is the steepness. That's really what determines how difficult it is to build on. A steep slope means that we're having to build underneath our base structure to support it or we're having to dig into the site to be able to get effectively a level platform for us to build our house on. Some of the issues with sloping sites are that we can have water coming into the house because it's cut into the site or it can be just a lot more expensive to build because we're building up out of the site. That's right. Not only is the structure what you're putting into the ground but then there's also those follow-on trades like you've got to allow for a lot more extra scaffolding to get painters up to paint on the roof those sort of costs can compound right through the whole project allowing for the slope of the site right at the beginning of the project I think is really important and to me it actually helps form the design I like to split level a home the split level is doing two levels and you might have a couple steps between them the floor plan might be all on the same plane in a sense but you actually got steps between the heights you might have a better way to describe that split level it's not two-story effectively the the greater part of the building is on a level and there's a second part that's on another level but it might only be a meter or so difference whereas a standard change of building height would be well over the two meter mark probably two and a half to three meters between the different levels that's when we'd call them stories we'd have a ground floor and a first story in terms of designing for a sloping site Everything changes. The big issue or one of the big challenges we see with project homes, for example, yes, they're a cheaper option, but they're generally designed for a flat site. Once we put them onto a slope, then obviously there's all these other issues and additional costs that people don't factor in. They might think they're going in for a cheaper price initially, but it's really compounded by the fact that they've got to actually build this house on top of something. That's right. And those cheaper sites are facing the wrong way half the time, aren't they? So that's where all of those things come together and are affecting each other. I know that not only when we have a sloping site and we want to cut into it with a flat floor plan or a split level, you've still got the hidden unknown factors in under the dirt. Have we got big rocks in there or what type of soil we've got? And that's where the cost into the engineering or the foundations might come into it. Heather, do you want to explain a little bit more about what foundations are and how they can be affected on a sloping site? Foundations are the things that support our building. If you think about it like a jetty, we've got the platform and then we've got the bits that go down into the ocean. Well, we're doing exactly the same thing with foundations in terms of having a building platform and then the foundations are what go down into the ground to support the structure. They can be concrete, they can be brick, they can be timber, steel or a combination of all of the above depending on what they are they can be extremely costly because they're a big lump of mass to hold the building onto the site when we talk about foundations this is the part that costs us money because soils can be extremely different even within a single site when we get our specialists geotechnical people to do soil samples on the site the reason is is across the site you may get four different types of soil even on the one site you might have a reactive clay you might have a sandy base you might have rock and you might have just general soil now all of those react differently with footings one of the really risky types is a reactive clay soil because it takes in water and so what that does is expands and contracts a lot which means that can move the last thing we need in building is to have something move but an even more expensive risk is rock because once we get down into rock who knows how much rock there is how hard it's going to be to get out and this is where a lot of people come unstuck I always say that the most expensive part is what we call getting out of the ground getting from the below ground to the above ground where we've got our slab or our 
base where we're starting to put our house. We need to get out of the ground as effectively as possible and this is a mistake unfortunately with a lot of the project home designs etc is that initially it looks so much cheaper but the cost of getting out of the ground can be a third of the cost or more of the actual house itself. And that's where the planning and preparation is key as a part of that isn't it that's why we bring in the experts the geotechnical people talking about the dirt the dirt guys we call them (laughs) the dirt experts it's about bringing them in early on so that we can help reduce the amount of surprises and I know with my home I have both clay and rock so yay me and that's most of Launceston and it's actually quite a high risk of landslip in Launceston which is that risk of the land slipping or the houses falling down the hill we didn't want that once we got digging in as well for that foundations we found that it was wetter than what the soil testing was showing we then brought the experts back in and said hey what are we going to do here we had to sink another 30 40 grand into the ground it is expensive but if you've got that preparation for it you can help reduce and minimise those costs and those errors. Absolutely. The thing about it is you have to get it right because if you don't get it right, there's going to be ongoing issues with it. When we start our planning, the two things that we really look at, firstly, are our soil conditions and secondly, are our boundaries. We bring the geotech in to do our soil samples and we bring a land surveyor in to set out our site to check the exact size of the site and to check our boundaries. This is really important, isn't it, Trish? That's right. And boundaries can mean different things to people. Sometimes when you've got a new development, it's just an invisible line or you're looking from a a stake or a peg in the ground to another peg. But other times, more developed areas, you might find it's actually the fence line. So that's a good way of determining where your your extent extent might be. Uh, The surveyor will map out the slope of the site, where any major features are, so that we know, like you mentioned before, does the slope run diagonally across the site or side to side, north to south, front to back, those sort of things. They're bringing all that together with the experts makes the job a lot smoother. <laughs> it's really, really important too with boundaries. Just because something's there, it doesn't mean it exists. If you see a fence, there's no guarantee that that's necessarily been built in the right place. Part of getting it right from the start is that a land surveyor will, what we call pegs, they have literally little pegs, they pop in the ground and sometimes they have coloured spray that they put on the pegs. So often if you see a large development, there'll be a series of little pegs so little white pegs with colours or little flags on top and what they mean is the new boundaries for the site you can get a bit of an indication of where a site boundary might be but it's imperative that you get that surveyed properly because that's your legal entitlement to your land so if that's wrong you might end up with more land or less land and there's also been terrible instances where people have built on the wrong site. Oh, yeah, I actually know of a few. <laughs> but those pegs can be moved too. So that's where that reassurance of having someone double check that. And even your builder will do another check. They'll still run a tape over as well. So they can't pick up the angles, but they can still get an indication and identify if a peg might have been adjusted. And it could just be by a couple hundred mil, but it could be by a few metres, which... It's not in your favour. Having that protection in place is important. In regards to boundaries, we're also looking at our setbacks and what that means. Can you explain a little bit further about that one? Certainly. Council have regulations and it's really important that people understand that you can't just go and build anything anywhere on a site. We're very, very regulated in Australia and there's good reason for that because council can't afford just to have people do whatever they want whenever they want because the building codes and the standards are there to ensure that places are built to a certain standard. With council requirements, they have guidance about local zones and site zones, but within those, there's guidelines about boundaries and setbacks. Setback is the distance between the front alignment and where you can start building or on the side, your side boundaries and alignment of where you can start building or at the rear. With boundaries, 
you might think you're getting this huge site, but once you've put all these setbacks in place, it defines a shape, usually a rectangle, of where you can actually put your building. And that can often be quite smaller than what the site actually looks like. And that can come together with the zoning in uh, central Melbourne or close suburbs to Melbourne. We're looking at a lot of the townhouses, so the row houses, where they're quite close. And that's part of the proportion of not only the area, but then the sites. They're two different things, aren't they? Proportion-wise to a site with the boundary setbacks and the location. How do they all come together? It's a tricky thing to process. It is. When we're talking about proportion of the site, we're talking about the width to the length. And that can have a massive impact on how well you can put a building on the site. A lot of developers only look at the maximum amount of sites that they can put into a subdivision, for example. They might end up, depending on the land configuration, with lots of very long skinny sites. And I see this all the time that on the site area looks proportionately bigger to something down the road. But the trouble is, by the time you put your side setbacks in, you've got this very long, thin ribbon style development. It makes it very, very hard to get what we were talking about, the natural orientation, the sunlight in, the ventilation in, because we've got a long, thin side. I'd always prefer something as close to possible as square yeah. <laughs> in our idea world, but there's so few sites that are like that. Most of them have a front width and part of that width we call frontage for obvious reasons because it's fronts to the street but that frontage the wider the frontage you can get usually the better the design outcome will be. That's right they're a rare beast (laughs) but coming into the zoning is bringing those two areas together. Council zoning might relate to the area or location that your site is positioned and what type of site that might be. You might have something referred to as a residential site or an inner city site or maybe a rural site and each of those zones indicate the boundary setbacks differently. I've seen sites that are more of a city size in a rural zone and the setbacks just can't comply therefore you have to go through additional processes at council. Yeah, it's really interesting. The council zones will be like looking at a big map with blobs of colour on it where different (laughs) zones are to keep it very simple, but they're called a zoning map. And if you go to your local council, they will have zoning maps for your area. A really good process to go through is to go and look that up. Most of it's online now and see what zone your property or your site's located. Within residential, there's also multiple classifications and all this really comes down to the density, the amount you can build. The closer you are to a city centre, then the more dense you can build. Obviously, very close into a major city centre, you can build apartments and high-rises. But as we work out into the suburbs, it becomes a lot less dense. Obviously, the intermediate suburbs will have densities where you can have townhouses or co-joined houses. They've got a joint wall. You can even have apartments where they're right next to each other in a townhouse configuration. And then the further out you go, you will have standalone houses with lots of circulation space around it. But all of these zoning requirements are really telling you how much you can build on that land. And that's our next point. When we come to our planning, not only do we look at our orientation, our levels and our size, a really critical thing is also then working out what we can fit for that zoning, how much built area we can do relative to how much landscaped area. There's a thing called floor space ratio and what that floor space ratio relates to is how much floor space you can build relative to the amount of grass or permeable area. And that permeable area is in relation to how the water penetrates the surface. A grass or a garden, you can get pavers that are actually permeable. So it's the allowance of water passing through so that it's soaked up naturally through the earth and it's not 
water running off and pooling somewhere or the issues that can come with that as well. The indoor and outdoor zones are quite important, how they might come together as well. How do you interact with those? And then it's also the levels and the heights between those spaces. It's really important in Australia, we value our outdoor spaces as much as our indoor spaces, particularly for eating and entertaining. We like to use outdoor areas. When you're planning, it's really important to consider where the best aspect for those are as well. It might be you want to put a kitchen somewhere, but then you want to have it co-joined to an outdoor entertaining area. Well, you need to look at where that will be best placed. There's no point putting it in the shade if you want warm. And then there's the view. <laughs> so bringing it all together. Privacy and screening between the neighbours as well is something that we've got to consider. If you've got someone else's living room right opposite your living room, unless you're family and you want to party together, that might be a bit different. But You've got to think about either your privacy, maybe a building that might be sitting up a little bit higher than you, how they're looking down into your space and how you want to configure those zones again too. It's interesting in high density areas in CBD locations, the requirements are far more strict on screening. There's lots of rules about not being able to look into each other's apartment because obviously we've got lots of bathrooms, we've got lots of bedrooms and some living areas. So the rules are quite prescriptive about what you can and can't do in terms of privacy screening. Generally, units are very well protected, but Often in homes, just single homes on a block, there's really very little consideration between you and your neighbour and you might end up with not having enough privacy. I know. Once the fence went up at our place, it made a big difference. We're not looking into their bedrooms anymore. It can make it quite awkward, sort of relationship you don't want to generate sometimes. (laughs) That's right. The other thing when we're talking about zonings, we need to look at those with our site levels as well. If you've got different levels across the site... For example, if you want an outdoor entertaining area, you might be able to split that outdoor entertaining area across two levels. You might be able to have a retaining wall that acts as a garden seat. But it's really important that the levels are also considered because it's not just a big flat bit of lawn, is it? No, that's right. There's another cost. And if you don't get that right or allow for earth moving to happen early on, you might not be able to get anything up there to do that. It's part of that planning right at that early stage again what do we need to allow for while we've already got a digger on there that's going to save us some money (laughs) when we look at our site challenges there's a lot isn't there there's quite a bit we've covered a bit there and i know some of it's probably overwhelming we could almost grab an episode on each one of those points it's all about the planning and this is where we come back to is planning our ious planning our inside outside upside down areas planning is so so critical when it comes to our site challenges again we'll just recover what we've been talking about we've got the building orientation we're talking about our climate our natural light our winds and our energy efficiency then we look at our site levels how much slope there is what do we need to do to design around those levels and how much more it's going to cost if we have got different levels we're looking at the size how big the site are what the boundaries are what's the proportion of the site relative to other sites and relative to the house we want to design and finally our zones so our local council zones our zoning of the site our indoor and outdoor zones the different levels and our privacy and screening Trish you've just been through this whole process have you got any tips for anybody about pulling it all together planning and reach out to professionals (laughs) i think we've already covered bringing in consultants our soil guys our dirt guys our surveyors the land slope mapping out bringing those consultants in and working with professionals talking to designers an architect or a building designer can offer really great insight in regards to orientation and how that can best be utilized for your location your climate 
the intent of your design as well. I think it's really important to get those professionals in early too. That's our key is this is where we're starting. If you get this wrong, the knock-on implications are horrific and the dollars can just escalate dramatically. If you take nothing else away, it's get your professionals early, (laughs) get them on site, get them to do their surveys, get them to do their soil tests and make sure you know what you're dealing with because you might find that the extra cost is actually going to be prohibitive for you and you might not even proceed. It's one of those things that once you're informed and once you understand what you're dealing with, you can make decisions and that may well impact how big a house you can build or the type of design is that you're going to put on that site. And I think that's what we also want to offer is that education process. When you're dealing with those professionals to have understanding and knowledge behind you so you have the confidence to ask the questions at the right time and to even provide the further information for them so they can accommodate your wishes. Isn't it lucky that we established the Scribble School? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because we are design professionals and we have other design professionals that we deal with but what we're really doing is trying to pull resources together to give you a really good understanding and guidance to get you through this process so that the pain points are no longer pain points they're just something that you need to understand thanks very much trish for having a chat about specifically your site but (laughs) discussing the site challenges that we've been through and i'm so looking forward to our next series of episodes which is all about kitchen design which is your speciality should be great thanks for listening to this episode of the sketchy ladies podcast and don't forget to follow us on socials for design inspiration and leave a review The links are in the show notes. This episode was brought to you by The Scribble Club, our signature group coaching program to help women design beautiful, functional, healthy homes. Check it out at thescribbleclub.com along with so many free resources to help you design and deliver the dream spaces in your home and get the results that you deserve. If you loved this episode, please don't keep it a secret. Share it with your friends on social media and tag us at The Scribble Club. We love hearing from our listeners and seeing your reactions to our episodes. We'd also love for you to leave a review on your favourite podcast platform. Your feedback helps us grow and improve our content. It also helps other listeners to find our show. Have a wonderful day. We're the Sketchy Ladies and we're behind you all the way.